Hello, this is Richard Joy, Executive Director of ULI Toronto, and welcome to our special podcast series, In Case You Missed It. In this season, we delve deep into the ULI Toronto archives to present past speakers of our signature annual fireside chat, featuring industry and city building leaders from our region, their perspectives on the past and the future from the time we recorded, and their sage advice for emerging industry leaders. That these interviews were recorded as much as a decade ago adds a special dimension to these podcasts. They are already time capsules of a different era. In this episode, Cadillac Fairview's Peter Sharp in conversation with CBRE's John O'Brien in 2012. We hope you enjoy. Um, my name is John O'Brien. Um, I am the Vice Chairman of CBRE. And um, I have introduced this, uh, this is the fourth session now I've introduced of these fireside chats. Um, we have had Ned Goodman and Michael Cooper. Uh, we had uh, Fred Wax and Ed Sunshine, and we have had John Love um, interviewed by Blake Hutchison. So it is my great pleasure this year to, um, to introduce to you uh, someone that is incredibly well known in our industry, Peter Sharp, formerly of Cadillac Fairview and now of everywhere. <laughs> thank you. Uh, before I get going, I would like to thank our sponsors, without whom none of this ever happens. So Cadillac Fairview, big surprise, is actually the, uh, is the uh, lead sponsor. The event sponsors are CBRE and TD. And when Peter and I talk about the, uh, the deal where Peter took over the rest of the uh, complex that he didn't own at T uh, TD Center, Eaton Center, and uh, uh, Pacific Center, you'll know why TD is a sponsor. Um, we are also recording this for posterity, so be careful what you say because it will live on and <laughs> on and on and on. Um, the format is very informal, so we're going to go roughly an hour. Um, then we're going to allow about 15 minutes for uh, questions. The format is a direct ripoff, um, just so you know, and we acknowledge it, of the Inside the Actors Studio format, so right down to the chairs. I don't have the list of cards, but I've really got the notes, but it is, it, it is meant to be more informal. It is, it is not meant to be a recantation of somebody's CV, but it's more a recantation of somebody's business life. So um, uh, now, uh, Katie, are you there? Way to go. Can you go to that really horrible black Blank screen. Perfect. So, Peter, your name is, by the way, we, we, it was um, Inside the Mind of Peter Sharp, Sharp Thoughts. Your name opens up a plethora of possibilities. <laughs> but what we actually landed on in the end was Peter Sharp, this is your life. Oh, jeez. So, <laughs> and, and every life has a beginning, Peter. Um, and um, I wouldn't mind just talking about your sort of early days, where you grew up and all of that type of stuff, because I'm sort of harkening back to the, the Jesuits um, whom I was educated by have this wonderful saying, which sounds a bit sexist now, but if you, if you ignore the sexism in it, which says, if you show me a boy before he's seven, I'll show you the man. So the early years are often quite indicative of where you're going, and your early years were in Winnipeg, I understand. Your wife sent me these pictures. So. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> now, the one when you're screaming, I've seen that expression when I've given you lease offers before, so I know how that one works. But yeah, for some historical accidental reason, you, were, you, you started in Winnipeg? Attention. Yep. I have your attention, please. This is building security. A fire alarm has been activated on the 25th floor. We are investigating the alarm. 
Yeah, that's true. I uh, I was uh, born in Winnipeg. I lived all there for all of about three weeks. So I uh, then moved to uh, Toronto. So I I uh, consider myself raised certainly raised in Toronto. And a. Um. You were in operations. This is the operations guys yeah. getting back at me. I know. <laughs> All those years. <laughs> um, so, um, Lawrence Park, benign upbringing. It was fun. You, were, yep. you had angst as a teenager. Like, how did it go? Yeah, no, uh, all, uh, all pretty normal. Uh, you know, my dad was in sales, and mom was a homemaker, and uh, my sister and I grew up, went to North Toronto Collegiate, Blythewood Public School, and um, yeah, nothing. Camp? Uh, I was very active in, at Kilku camp uh, through a uh, uh, number of years and then was on the staff at Kilku camp and then uh, mainly on the waterfront and my last year there which was just before I went to university was uh, as, a, as the waterfront director. So camp did play a big role um, in, in my life back then and I think it's, it's interesting uh, when you, you kind of develop sort of leadership by osmosis when you're in a, as a camp counselor or a waterfront director or even a swimming instructor, you're, you know, you just, you have to learn and nobody really teaches you, but you learn to how you manage people and motivate people and get people to do things they don't want to do. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, I look back at that as a, as a, a key time in my early development, certainly, yeah. And anybody stand out for like role models that you sort of touched, a touchstone going backwards? Well, John Latimer, who ran Kilku Camp, owned Kilku Camp at the time, uh, uh, became a dear friend, and, uh, and he was certainly uh, someone who, um, uh, who had a great influence on me. And, uh, and my dad, I guess, would be the other one that certainly, um, you know, he, uh, he taught me a lot about, about patience and calm and, um, uh, uh, and, um, Respect for people and you know politeness. He was a real gentleman, so uh, he'd have been another big influence over the years. Yeah. Next stage. Oh, so Wilfrid Laurier, which wasn't Wilfrid Laurier, right? No, there was Waterloo Lutheran University in those days, uh, and I started there in '66. Uh, graduated in '70. Took uh, an honors program in uh, economics and business administration. It was called at the time. So. Uh, and friends from that period have lost it? Or? Uh, yes, uh, you know, we were, there was a very close-knit group there that um, we organized a, a winter carnival back in those days, where, and it was completely run by students of the business school primarily, and uh, with a very minimal cash flow allowance from the university, we put on, um, uh, ultimately turned into a week-long event um, and we'd fly, in those days, every university had a queen. And uh, so we'd fly all these queens in, and we got Air Canada to fly them all in, and we put them up for a week, and uh, we had concerts, we had blood, sweat, and tears, we had Diana Ross Supremes, we had big shows, we sold TV rights to the, to the, uh, the actual uh, show, it's the uh, show itself. And, um, uh, it was quite an incredible 
you know, for a bunch of kids to be able to, to put this together. Bill Ballard, who went on to, um, uh, uh, was with the group, who went on to have uh, Concert Productions International, the guy Pete Larson, um, and Pat Whitley uh, developed uh, Dufferin, uh, Dufferin Gate and was make, made movie. He's retired recently, but he made a lot of movies over the years for, for television movies as opposed to big screen. Uh, so it was, it was quite an interesting group, and in fact, that group to this day, for since about mid-70s, we get together every year for Christmas dinner, and um, uh, we still get, uh, there's probably a potential of 22, 23 people, and I would say there's never fewer than about 18 there, so uh, people really don't want to miss it, and uh, in many cases, um, it's the only time we see each other every year. But. I, that, out of that whole experience, it became a pretty close group. And a good counterpoint for real estate they, in that they weren't mainly real estate people? No, that, not at all. And no, in fact, uh, nobody uh, in that group uh, uh, had a career in real estate. Uh, so. so, moving on. So, I, I, there's a picture of Nancy Green up there, which I, I will come to in a second. Okay. Um, what we did notice, so I couldn't get the logos. It shows you how long ago those companies were yeah, around. Yeah, that's right. But I couldn't actually none of them get exist the logos. Yeah. yeah, because they're all out of business. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Got a the hell of a track record. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you have recently joined Allies Board. Which is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but the Nancy Green thing intrigued me with. Uh, yeah, I, I worked through university and, and shortly thereafter with World Bank which I loved, and, um, uh, but at uh, $7,500 a year, I was looking for advancement. And so I, I joined a small public relations, sports promotion public relations firm. Uh, there were three partners and an, an admin assistant and me. And, uh, but one of their clients was uh, that we managed Nancy Green. We did her Mars bars commercials and all those things. We managed Red Berenson, a tennis player named Peter Burwash at the time. And, uh, and we organized the World Curling Championship, which at that time was sponsored by Air Canada. You were how old at this point? Uh, I would have been uh, 22, three, three, I guess, yeah. And um, uh, that was great because uh, I was the young guy with no ties. And uh, so we, we organized one in in Megev in France. So I was over there for six months and fly back and forth on a first class Air Canada Pass because they were the sponsor and lived in the host hotel for the six months. And next year I did the same thing in Garmisch. Uh, so that was, uh, that was a lot of fun for a young guy to, to uh, do that. So, uh, Boy, McK where's Mackenzie? Man, <laughs> did you get it wrong. <laughs> so, um, and then we, um, uh, so then from there, uh, I really, uh, it was pretty clear to me that within that little company, I, w I didn't have much of a future, so I, I but I loved the business and I wanted to stay in it. And so at that time, other than the odd little organization like that, the whole public relations promotion business was pretty much handled by the ad agencies. So I started talking to them, figuring that was gonna be a, a bigger uh, field of opportunity. And, uh, and they offered me $7,500 again. So um, uh, I decided that that wasn't in my future. So, so how'd you end up in real estate? Well, a, a fellow that I went to university with named Bob Ferguson, who some in the room will remember, um, 
He was with Bramley back when and uh, has been in the States now for a number of years. Uh, but he was working at Marathon and we'd known each other in university. And so we, uh, we were getting together one evening for a beer at the Victoria Hotel, which is still there, unlike the companies. Um, and uh, so he was, as I was telling him my, my plight that I, you know, I really wanted to uh, get with a larger firm, but nobody did it. And he said, well, we're, we're hiring. We're looking for a property representative. And I said, oh, okay, what do they do? Well, they run the buildings, you know, they, they lease it, they market it, they, they manage the contracts, you know. They, they're basically responsible for the building. And I, I said, uh, well, how much does that pay? He said, $12,000. I said, I can do that. <laughs> that's, the, and that's exactly, it, it all started at the Victoria Hotel over a beer. There you go. And if there's a fire, it may just end there. <laughs> <laughs> A good omen. He's going to say it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're right. <laughs> so, where for, so how long at Marathon? I was there for about four and a half years at Marathon. Uh, and uh, office properties? Uh, I started out managing uh, 69 Young Street. That was the building that I was hired to manage. And uh, uh, in those days at Marathon, it was... Pretty new company, but they were growing, and so people were moving on very rapidly. So I had a I had a meteoric rise, uh, just filling backfilling for the guy I worked for. Um, so I ended up uh, basically running their Ontario portfolio of properties, which wasn't. We had the Keel Center, which was at a two low, two level industrial project. There we had a shopping center in uh, in Cambridge. Uh, uh, a couple of office buildings. It was it was it was small in Toronto. Now they had Montreal, and um, uh, we were building in Montreal, building in Vancouver. Uh, but they had lots of land in downtown because it, it was basically formed out of the CP Rail uh, real estate group was spun off and moved into a, a real estate company. So in your quest for ever more money, yeah. where did you go next? <laughs> Uh, I, after Marathon, I went to York Hanover, and um, with them I was involved in a development down called um, Maple Leaf Square, which is down in Niagara Falls. So they had uh, three hotels, the Brock, the Foxhead, and the old Motor Inn, which is gone now. And uh, a fellow that ran that was a chap named Carson Von Werzeby, who had a vision of casinos and everything, so we built this. We built this entertainment complex between the hotels, put in this huge uh, Ferris wheel, uh, not quite as big as the eye, but uh, the next largest one in the world, I think. And um, uh, that, was, that was, learned a lot down there. We had to, our banking was dependent on us getting the uh, retail stores leased, and uh, uh, that was a struggle. And um, so I think in a span of about six months, we started 20 different retail companies um, and lease them all space and uh, stock them all and manage them all just so we could pull down our financing. <laughs> so it was, uh, 
Due diligence wasn't heavy. In those due days, diligence so. wasn't very heavy in those days. No, <laughs> no, no. So, uh, 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 but it was it was that was a, that was the first time that I ever. That's when I really learned to appreciate the 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 tie between building something, renting it, and uh, getting income and paying salaries. And if that wasn't working, then you really got to deal with the bank. And uh, uh, so, you know, I used to speak with the bank almost daily uh, back in those days. And, you know, as far as Carson was concerned, you're on your own, you know. And, uh, uh, but he'd sweep the cash every, uh, every 24 hours. So <laughs> he, um, uh, he, he made it pretty exciting, but we, we got through it all. So. And Fidnam? And then, um, well, after that, I actually went up. That's the uh, so I left there in '79, and that's I spent a year in Ottawa, uh, in the Prime Minister's office, in the short-lived government of uh, Joe Clark, and uh, uh, so I'd been very involved with politics uh, all through the '70s. Um, I I was basically functioned as a what they call the wagon master, the, the tour organizer. So I, I was not consulted often on foreign policy, but, uh, you know, where's the venue and how's everybody going to get there? And uh, that was the stuff that so I did. Jerusalem so. wasn't your idea. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> no. And um, so I did two uh, campaigns for uh, Bill Davis, and I did uh, two then for Bob Stanfield, two for Joe Clark, and then I finished up uh, the last sort of political activity I had was uh, Mulroney's leadership uh, campaign and uh, so you know that so it was through all that association that they asked me when Joe got elected I'd I'd sort of been a volunteer running his tour sort of donate my time donated by the company um, and they and it was it was a pretty small minor, uh, minor it was a minority government with a pretty slim margin so they figured they'd be back in tour mode before very long and so they asked me if I'd go up to Ottawa and uh, work out of the Prime Minister's office and uh, turned out, you know, four or five months later that he was out and I had to stay on and deal with a lot of the contract staff. So it was one of those things where you sit there and with the pleasant task of every, every, letting everybody else go and then as soon as you finish that, they let you go. You know, but that was all in the cards. I, I knew that. So it was, uh, but that was a fascinating time in terms of uh, when you talk about contacts and the people I met traveling the country uh, in those days, um, uh, you know, they kept popping up all through my business career. You know, you'd, I mean, for several years, you know, I couldn't walk through an airport without seeing, you know, several people I knew. But, um, you know, as time goes on, that diminishes. But, you know, it's, and, and a couple of times, it, they turned out to be very helpful. Uh, I remember when we were, we were trying to, uh, by the CBC lands, you know, I, there were some people I'd known all through that that were now there, and all the most of the lobbyists in Ottawa are old friends of mine, and so you know, it, uh, it's uh, it's amazing. Those things do they do come back. You never know where where those relationships are going to pay off. We'll talk about networking in a minute. Um, I, you never thought of um, going uh, in front of the in front of the microphone and running. No. Well, I did, I guess. But then I would go into the House of Commons when we were in Ottawa, sit up in the gallery and watch the goings-on down there. And I thought, that, you know, the sergeant-at-arms would be carrying me out of there on a daily <laughs> basis. So 
Now, I, I, uh, I, I peaked at the organization uh, <laughs> when it came to politics. And then uh, Fidnam was? And then I joined uh, uh, Fidnam uh, after that, uh, managing the uh, Hudson Bay Center, yep. actually. Sorry, I'm just and, going to um, uh, uh, And then with Fidnam, ultimately was looking after all their uh, all their uh, real estate um, in their Canadian real estate. So we had apartments in Calgary and Edmonton and a little shopping center out there and some buildings on Young and the Hudson Bay Center and some apartments in Montreal and uh, and um, uh, yeah we had a, a center called Centre Laval in uh, uh, in Montreal just down from Carrefour Laval, which is the Cadillac project. Uh, yeah, so I was there until I was recruited to Cadillac Fairview in uh, the spring of 84. So you would have arrived two years after the Great Flip? Yes, exactly right. We were out of all the, I think about, in the final tally, they sold about 13,000 apartment buildings, that, units rather. Um, and I think at their peak, they were more like 16 or 17,000 units. And that was really the coming together, Cadillac and the Fairview was the residential company and the commercial company really, like Keith Diamond was there at the beginning, wasn't he? Yeah, well, the, no, no, the, the Cadillac Construction and Fairview Corporation and Don Mills, uh, they joined together in, uh, in the early 70s, I guess, um, and formed Cadillac Fairview. Um, and so uh, you're quite right, a lot of that residential stuff had had uh, had its roots in the Cadillac organization. Fairview was shopping centers and office, um, uh, and the the two merged, and they continued to grow uh, grow the residential. Um, in fact, we were into everything at that time. I wasn't there, but obviously, but we were doing subdivisions, and uh, we did a couple of condos. We did lots of apartments, and and then. Uh, that was all sold in 82, I think was the, the year of that. The Great Flip. Yeah, yeah. Was it sold? For, I wrote the numbers down because I ended up, I, I, I'm not going to talk about myself because it's about Peter, but it's the only time I've ever been on a book, which was called Public Money, Private Greed about the flip. I sent it to my mother and she said, terrific, you're in a book about crooks. <laughs> so, um, but it was sold for 270 to the boys. And after two flips, they sold it to themselves for 500 and it cost the government $131 million, I read, to actually prosecute these guys so that one guy could spend 12 months in an open prison. Yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, but that, yeah. that sort of, that was the new Cadillac sort of emerged once you got rid of all that residential, right? That was... The yes, and, and when that happened, that's when Bernie Gert uh, came in, and he, he really got the company focused on, well, he was the guy who made the decision to get out of those, you know, apartment units, and... We sold off a lot of second-tier uh, assets, a lot of uh, uh, smaller, um, uh, smaller buildings, a lot of international kind of, we had spots and bits all over the place. And uh, Bernie was really got the place, let's narrow down our focus and uh, let's concentrate on places where we can make money. Because I, th I think we built we built the greatest apartment buildings probably ever made, but I don't know that we ever made any money. I think we overbuilt everything pretty dramatically back in those days, and but that was uh, 
you know, we took that kind of, you know, high-rise office building standard to uh, residential. Like it was a little of overkill. Yeah, yards, yeah. Right? Swimming pools. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, there was a, obviously a pre-established relationship with TD at that point, right, from the TD Center days and cross, yes. cross directorships and the whole, mm -hmm. uh, the whole That's bit. Right. That was a very tight relationship. It was a very big relationship and, uh, and uh, one that was, uh, was, was key to Cadillac uh, both in good times and in more difficult times. And so, um, so who did wh what relationship did you inherit when you got there? Was that uh, who was that? Was that uh, who was that head? Because Charlie Bailey came late. Oh yes, no, it was Dick Thompson. Dick Thompson. Yeah, Dick Thompson was that head of the bank at that time, and he took a very he was on Cadillac's board, and he took a very um, uh, a very keen interest in the TD Center. So uh, my main exposure to him early as I joined the company as the Vice President of Operations for the Office Group. We were, there were three distinct sort of companies within the Cadillac umbrella back then. There was a guy named Marty Seaton who ran Industrial. He was based in Los Angeles, but we had Industrial North America wide. Then uh, there was um, uh, Mike Prentice, who, who was who I worked for. He was based in Dallas, and he was, ran the office side. And then Jim Bullock was in Toronto, and he ran the shopping center side, but they, they all had their own presidents and you know, Treasury was a, 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 was a sort of in the holding company for lack of a better term. But, um, but there were three distinct companies with you know, dis distinct accounting systems and, and uh, so it wasn't until 87 when the Bronfmans decided to put the company up for sale. Um, because uh, it was it had been publicly held up to that point, and uh, they decided to sell their interest. Um, uh, TD and Bank of Nova Scotia, I think, both had significant holdings um, of of stock, and uh, so together they put the company out. And then a Chicago firm named JMB um, bought uh, and syndicated the company to. I forgot, 37 or 38 pension funds. Um, I think the case was the only Canadian pension fund that got in the deal. And then there was um, uh, one uh, UK pension fund, and it just escapes me who it was. They weren't big in the deal. And the rest were all US, uh, US funds. That was in uh, 87. And that sort of period from when you joined in, uh, and then right through to sort of 1990, these were the real, this is when all of, we were talking about it before, all of the characters, it was, it was the Bronfmans and it was the, the oh, Bob Reichmans Campo and, and the Campo, Camp, yeah, sure. Well, all through the sort of, uh, you know, 70s and, and 80s, these guys were, yeah, these guys were bigger than life. And, and Winston's was the place, right? Winston's was the cafeteria, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and Joe had, I, I mean, you've been friends with Joe Bonacu for a long time. Long Joe, time, yeah. Joe had his table, right? He did, he did. There were a number of... Uh, you, you might want to explain his drinks policy because I found it fascinating. As a, <laughs> as a business development tool for the younger members of the audience, it's, I'm not sure you could duplicate it today, but it was, certainly was interesting. Yeah, well, back in those days, nobody drank wine in those days, but you certainly drank at lunch. And uh, so it was all highballs. And uh, when you went to Joe's table, it was just an unspoken rule. You, uh, Nobody ever asked you, but 
when he poured you a drink, if you ordered, argument's sake, I ordered a rum and coke, it would be a double. That was, just, that was automatic. You got a double. And then sort of you'd pick this up and you'd have a sip and you'd think, whoo, that's clearly a, a strong drink. And so you'd, you'd sort of sip away at it. And the other rule was that nobody knew about it until you'd been there once or twice is that uh, when the glass was, you know, halfway down, it was simply replaced with another double. And you'd be, you'd be talking over here, and then you'd look back and say, damn, there's that full glass again. So that was this. And, uh, and eventually, you, got, you probably uh, you didn't really care what you were uh, having at that, <laughs> or agreeing to. Yeah. But great, I mean, he is a, almost a quintessential example of a networker supreme, right? Just followed yeah, people absolutely. through career. And, from top to bottom, wasn't just the senior guys. Yeah, I mean, I, in those days, uh, when I first started going there, I was the manager of uh, 69 Young Street. But he he used to look after Stu Eagles, uh, who was the president and his friend. And but he always always had time for the the guys in the front line and the you know. Uh, so yep, and he knew everybody and remembered everybody. A f phenomenal memory he had, which was a great gift. Uh, and would do yeah. favors for anybody without. Yep. Didn't have to be a payback. Yep. No. It would be right. one day, but yep. Yep. not right then. No, that's for sure. Yeah. 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 And so going into the early 90s, so I mean, it was as I remember it, because I, I remember some of the like the land holdings of the big developers, and the fact that banks and the developers were really partners. They, it wasn't a lender borrower relationship. In many really cases, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and then when it hit, I mean, it hit you guys as, as much as it hit everybody else, right? So it might, for, for guys who weren't around, it might be worth just sort of describing how we went into that and, you know, how development yields were yeah. calculated at Winston's after yeah. a couple of yeah. cola drinks. The, um, the uh, you know, that was probably the toughest time uh, that I remember in, in my career because, you know, the 80s had been pretty boom times. We were all building pretty aggressively, shopping centers, office buildings. Um, and, and of course, we were leasing them out based on you know, this great escalation of rents that kept happening year after year. And uh, so a lot of us um, in you know, 1990 were delivering new shopping centers and new office buildings. And you know, suddenly, uh, you know, the bubble burst. And uh, uh, we saw it. Um, first in retail, it, it, you know, retail sort of, uh, because of its tie, I get really to the consumer. Retail responds much quicker to downturn, and equally they came out of it earlier. So retail, we were, I remember we had just opened a center called Aaron Mills, and I think I must have renegotiated 60% of the leases in there. Um, and. Despite that, we still had failure after failure, um, uh, and uh, so that was. Those were very, very. Uh, those were tough times, and it was, you know, tough coming to work every day when you're you're sitting there and you. Many times you you've got a, a, an individual in front of you whose whole life is tied up in this retail business, and you know there's time, times you just had to say no, and uh, you knew it meant. He was about to lose everything, and I, you know that was not a lot of fun. Um, uh, but it, uh, you know, it did teach. It, it, you know, it did teach you that, you know, to be, uh, about being honest and open and frank with people. Because, and but also listening. You know, I think 
all those people went out upset. Um, but you know, most of them felt they'd been they'd been listened to, and uh, they hadn't just been told no. Now the boss says no, it's not happening. You know, you talk through it, you'd walk through it, spend the time, and that kind of communication and respect that you showed them. I think you know, down the road, a lot of these guys were back and you know had great relationships even even though it had, uh, I'd had to deliver some very bad news to them. So, so that was very tough. And then office kind of chugged along for another year or so. And then, then somebody dusted off that CCAA legislation from the 30s, and they discovered they could uh, go into CCAA and um, uh, repudiate leases or portions of leases and... Um, so that's when the the office hit. Then I, you know, there were several companies in Toronto that were, you know, really doing office deals back then that were negative net effective deals. Um, you know, you you might get your operating costs, but with an inducement to get the guy in, and with um, you know rent kicking in, you know, a year later or at a very minimal level and escalating very slowly, um, they really were net effective. They were negative. Um, but you know, you you got you got people in a building, and you started covering at least you covering your occupancy, uh, out of pocket uh, costs, um, even if even if not keep, keeping your banker happy. So that that really started, and then, um, and the you know the tough time is knowing when you when you start to hold the line and say, okay, no, we we want real rent now. We've got to start getting real rent back. And I remember. When we started to see retail come back, just given the history of retail followed by office and the same on the upswing, uh, we started uh, TD Center. Uh, we started just holding out for rents and, and certainly missed a few deals initially, but um, uh, you know, then they started coming around. But, so that was, a very, that was a very challenging few years in both office and retail. Uh, you talked about your lenders, the relationship, I mean, that relationship lending was, that was when it was all tested, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, we had Dick Thompson on our board and, and TD were our big lenders. And, um, uh, you know, I, Dick probably stayed on the board because then, the, then our company got into difficulty in the, in the mid-90s as a result of all this and um, falling revenues and then um, uh, distributions to our shareholders and um, and then we were all offside on covenants and um, so we got into a, a restructuring at the time um, but Dick stayed on our board and the TD Bank worked with us uh, probably more than you would uh, more than you probably could ever see today but uh, but there had been a strong relationship and we were still big partners and uh, um, but uh, uh, that, uh, that truly was that relationship. Had that not been there, it would have been a very different outcome for, uh, for Cadillac Fairview. And it worked out for TD, right? And it worked out for TD. Eventually, yes, it did uh, very well. And then, uh, and then we ultimately bought, their, bought them out of their uh, real estate in uh, 2000, I guess that was. I've still got Photostab, the commission check. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so, um, 95... Bruce Duncan arrived? Yeah, 95, we went through a, a really a restructuring within the company. Um, so the, the debt, which had been 
put on the company by JMB and all these funds. Um, Blackstone, uh, Goldman Sachs, and an, an outfit called Oak Tree had bought up a lot of these, uh, a lot of this debt and bonds, and um, uh, and so they um, uh, they put uh, they basically took over uh, the restructuring of the company, and they put um, uh, Bruce Duncan who actually came out of JMB, although he'd not been ever involved in the original deal. And at, and at this point in time, JMB was completely persona non grata with uh, certainly all the past shareholders, and there weren't many of them left, actually, but there were a few. Um, uh, and, uh, but Bruce came up uh, in, uh, in 95 um, to, um, to uh, see us through that uh, restructuring. And uh, so then it was, um, so it was in 90, so we got through that, I got our plan approved in the, I think that was probably late 95, although it may have been 96, I'm not quite sure, but got our plan approved and, and then the markets, you know, everything started to pick up and um, we came back and then in 97, we took the, couple, the uh, uh, company public again. Because you had the share ticker, I remember, in the lobby. At yes. The floor, yeah, I yeah, that's right. So we were public from 97, um, from the fall of 97, basically, till uh, the deal to take it private again was, in, was done in the fall of uh, 90, 99, uh, and it closed in, I don't know, January or February of, uh, of 2000. And would that have been Claude Lamoureux during his tenure, or...? Claude Lamoureux was the, was the head of teachers um, throughout that period. Uh, in fact, yeah, from, we had, a, we had a relationship with teachers in that we had a couple of joint ventures with them and were managing some property. Uh, so they'd had um, a bit of a look at, uh, at Cadillac. And then um, when the Goldman, Blackstone, Oak Tree group were together, uh, teachers came in at that time. And they came in with fresh new cash into the company. Um, and uh, uh, I think they were about 20% owners, round numbers, uh, at that time. Um, uh, so then, you know, we got through that, got our plan approved, sort of got back to uh, work as usual. And then, um, uh, and then the, the Goldmans and the Blackstones and so on, uh, uh, wanted to uh, liquidity event and so in 97 we took the company out uh, public again. Um, Blackstone held on to a position, teachers held on to their full position um, and uh, sorry did I say Blackstone? Um, um, Goldman's held on to a position, I think Blackstone was out, Oak Tree was out uh, shortly after that and um, in fact, the, uh, so during, during that interim period, we had you know, guys from each of those, those bank, uh, investment bank companies on our, on our board. And Jack Curtin, um, uh, I think, is on the board. So he's, he's stepping down from the board because he's back working at Goldman's now. But uh, um, uh, he, was, he was on the board from 94 till, uh, till now basically, and uh, 
Uh, and at th that time, then, Bob Bertram from Teachers uh, uh, was on the board. And uh, uh, then, in, as I say, in 99, they made a bid for all outstanding shares of the company that was uh, successful. And uh, um, that's when they uh, basically took full control of and, I guess, fundamentally privatized Cadillac Fairview. So we became... We became the real estate arm of the of the fund, although I was always very careful not to allow it to become sort of a division, and we kept separate board, separate auditors for a long time, uh, um, and we tried to we kept running ourselves as if we were a public company. I just you know the discipline of that was good, and we we reported that way to teachers, and so we had a wonderful you know they were a great partner. Um, were they largely hands off? They, they were. Very hands off. I, honestly, I can honestly say that if if I didn't call La Claude Lamoureux, I would never have spoken to him. Um, I used to go and see Bob Bertram monthly, go up and have a chat with him. But uh, no, they they were they gave us a, a large sort of rolling allocation that we could call down at any time and um, on any on any project that our our board approved. They they just approved an allocation, so they were. They were extremely hands-off, and uh, uh, of course, the company did very well, and I, I, that always helps, I'm sure. You know, had had we been in tougher times, that may not have been the case. But I think generally, they're 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 an excellent partner, and uh, uh, they 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 bought what they thought was a great platform, and they didn't want to mess so, with it. And did anything change over the sort of tenure from that point right through to when you uh, when you retired? In terms, in terms of the of relationship, relationship with yeah. are they still is it still that way today? Um, I I I believe so, but certainly in in my time there, um, yeah, we had uh, it was a great relationship, great relationship. That's an amazing amount of freedom for people who are controlling that much money, and it and it became an increasingly important piece of the puzzle, correct? Yeah, yeah, it um, uh, it, it was about twenty billion dollars uh, in assets, and we had very little debt. On the company at all um, through the days with teachers. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so wouldn't mind just moving on, Peter, to some of the assets, which I inadvertently was pressing the button while I was chatting with you. But um, <laughs> the the whole revamp of TD Center, as as we got into this sort of okay, the stock is getting older. All those 60s, 70s vintage buildings all seem to age at roughly the same time mm -hmm. in terms of leads starting to come out, and and then you hear about sustainability. What were the discussions internally about how you would take the complex and what you would do with it? Because you must have been talking about a long time before we see what we see today. Oh yeah, and you know, there's uh, a lot of money being spent, and um, you know, it, you you could probably make an argument that a lot of it would be, uh, you know, could be recoverable under the strict terms of the lease. But you just, you know, it just comes a point where you've got to you've got to take that big step and and spend those millions of dollars. And just reinvest in an asset that's treated you very well for for many years. Um, so uh, you know, a lot of it's around you know the marketing. I mean, if it becomes old and tired, obviously that works against you. Um, single pane glass um, became an issue as energy got more and more um, expensive. Um, uh, we decided, in sort of really doing an assessment of the building, that the big 
uh, perimeter units, that, those large box units that were there for heating and air conditioning, um, you know, obstructed, you know, for, first of all, it minimized the office size, yeah. the usable space in the office, but also obstructed views. So the, the new, new floors we did with the new glass, floor to ceiling, well, the glass was always floor to ceiling, but we took those away. I mean, it's a very dramatic impact. And then, but then there's, you know, millions spent, you know, in controls and all these things behind the scenes. You don't, there's nothing sexy about it. You don't get any real benefit other than a decline in, uh, in uh, tenant complaints and so on. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of that stuff, the, uh, the sustainability has obviously just become a bigger and bigger issue um, in the public's mind and, and certainly major tenants um, uh, you know, want to be able to say that they're in a uh, environmentally responsible building, whether it's lead building or uh, whatever, but they've got to, uh, so you've got to be aware of that. And I, you know, so all those things kind of, kind of drive it. And, um, but you're right, you know, it, it was probably two years in the making to decide what we were going to do. And, um, you know, the budget just kept creeping up and, uh, you know, you get up into hundreds of millions of dollars. It's, uh, it's a, it's a big decision. But, and and teachers know. are, were an integral part, I'm assuming, of that part of the, um, well, ultimately, um, they approved our operating and capital budgets, uh, but uh, but still relatively hands off. Very hands off. You know, our board. I mean, our board was the one we had to convince of the merits of all this. Um, teachers just said fine. And you were early into the deep water cooling, right? So that was we were. We were. We were actually uh, original shareholder and funder of that, and um, uh, signed a very large contract with them, which which made the whole project viable. Um, uh, so that was, yeah, that was, uh, that was early on. So just moving on, because I'm conscious of time. Um, sorry. Also conscious I'm pressing the wrong button. Uh, Eaton Center. Mm -hmm. um, shouldn't really work, because multi-level malls have never worked anywhere else, and it does. Um, and it seems that it's almost morphing. Well, number one, a lot of people don't realize what a big office footprint it really does have because the three towers are spread. Yep. But even in the retail space, it seems to reinvent itself on a very regular basis. It's almost like a laboratory for retailers. It, 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 how, how did that? Because it was stable for a long time. There was a sort of stable register of tenants, and then yep. it started to really change, right? Yeah, well, you know, retail, I think, is, is success of any shopping center is. Um, is constantly uh, upgrading and changing your face and changing and improving the offering. Uh, I actually used to worry a lot about Eaton Center because um, even though it was our flagship and we got the best rents there, uh, you know, retailers would come in. I'm not sure how much money they could actually make, but they viewed it as a necessary flagship and they'd do a lot of volume through there. But, you know, I don't today... You know, rents, uh, probably average rents in there uh, with operating costs and taxes are over $300 a foot. Well, you've got you to sell a lot of T-shirts to make the margin to pay that. So I used to worry a lot that, you know, one day some of these big retailers would really say, you know what, we're just, it's not worth it. We're not making, any, we're not making enough money here. What we, the advantage we did have was the volumes they were able to put through, which helped them in their buying and so on. 
But the other thing that really did happen in the downtown is this huge influx of residential. So now you've got a, a downtown core that's really densely populated, and that gives you just all this built-in traffic, you know, seven days a week. Um, you know, you've seen retail growing in downtown Toronto where it never was before, uh, and and that's really it. And the other benefit of that is, you know, the downtown is safer, you know, because there's people and activity and lights and. So it's, um, uh, uh, but yeah, it's constant kind of reinvestment, um, mainly in the retail, it's in the retail offering. Yeah. It's not, I mean, we've just done a huge, uh, you know, done all the floors and uh, the railings and stuff, but you know, that's, that's the first time that's been done since it was built. So, but it's the retail face and the retail offering, I think, that uh, is the key. You were head of ICSC for a while, but is there, any, is, there a, is there a multi-level mall anywhere in the world that's really like this? Well, there, there are some pretty spectacular malls, uh, but this, I mean, this one certainly is up there in terms of its size and, and uh, sales and performance and, uh, and its architecture. But it's remarkable when you start traveling around the world and seeing some of the malls in, in South America and Asia and Europe. I mean, there's some... We don't have a corner on the market here. No. There's some pretty spectacular But good segue stuff. when you mentioned South America, because we're going to talk about ah. So um, clearly, Brazil has a lot of people. Um, you know, what attracted you, before we talk about the JV you have, what attracted, because I know you were looking all different places. We I were. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing Andrea on multiple planes to South Africa, and she was going all yep. over the place. Yeah, we sure were. Um, what, why did you light on Brazil? Because there, there weren't many other people there when you went there, right? No. In terms um, of outsiders. It, it actually started out as a research project, which we did with teachers, and we were looking for we were looking for markets that we thought had potential. They were emerging markets with good potential, but they were still under the radar uh, in terms of, uh, of foreign investment. And um, uh, so we came across uh, Brazil. Um, teachers actually tried to do a couple of other deals in Brazil unsuccessfully before we did the real estate deal. Um, and um, uh, so once we, once we determined that that was a market uh, we wanted to play in, then uh, the, the, the big thing is always finding a partner. Uh, our model was always about buying a platform, buying, uh, we were never, it was never in our strategy to buy an asset either manage it ourselves or manage it with a third party that we always believed we needed the we needed somebody with skin in the game in the mark who knew the market on the ground there and so once you find the assets that you're that you think are consistent and that was a very big thing you know that you, you know I'm not a big believer you can you know, you can run a portfolio of AAA assets and run strip centers as well, nothing. There's nothing wrong with the strip center business, but what inevitably happens is you start overlaying the disciplines and controls and things of a of a major mall on a on a on a strip mall or a or a box center, and you know you just it doesn't work, and you there's too much expense, and you know the profitability disappears. So, so you wanted to we wanted to find a, 
a portfolio of assets that were more consistent with what we felt we knew and, and did well in, uh, in North America. So that was the same in South Africa. Um, Mexico, there we found a great series of assets. We just couldn't get comfortable with the partner, and so it never happened. So multi-plan was the... Poly so multi-plan we, we, uh, we found um, there, and uh, the entrepreneur, who's uh, 70 years old now, 71 maybe, um, who had built this company over 40 years from scratch, um, was there. He didn't like debt, um, so um, he, uh, he had a he had a pretty good cash flow, um, but it was restraining and, and borrowing costs at that time in Brazil. You'd, you know, a commercial uh, borrower would probably be mid-teens in terms of interest costs. So it's pretty hard to make those pro formas work when you're paying 15% on your money. So need to go back to Winston's. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, we came to the table with um, uh, equity. And uh, so we invested in uh, 1995 or four, or it's 2004 or five, maybe 2005, I guess, probably. Um, we invested about $535 million. Um, he took a bit of money out, off the table himself, but most of that money stayed in the company and fueled uh, the growth. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, the growth begets growth, and uh, today in Brazil, we probably have the equivalent of about $500 million worth of construction underway today, and for all intents and purposes, it's being funded out of cash flow. We've never paid a dividend there. We've had, never had distributions. We just keep piling it back in, and he's happy with that, and we're happy with that. Um, but it's, um, uh, you know, we, we then subsequently took um, uh, 40, uh, yes, 40% of the, of the company public. So between us, we still control 60%. Uh, and we have our same shareholders agreement. Um, but that, all that money stayed in the company to fuel growth. And uh, so our 30% our holding in that company today is worth something in the order of uh, Five, uh, 1.5, 1.6 billion dollars in five, roughly five years. So it's been a, it's been a triple in five years. So it's been a, a great investment and it continues to grow. The economy there is, uh, has slowed down. Their GDP growth has slowed down, but you know, our sales numbers there continue to be very strong. So that'll, I'm sure that will soften if this, if this, uh, continues, but, um, and you're on the board there? And I have uh, stepped down from the board as of April, and John Sullivan has, uh, on. Has, has taken my spot on the board. How was your Portuguese? Because you, ha you have a place down there, right? We do, yes. And uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but the Olympic Games and the World Cup are going to be down there. So <laughs> yeah. you, you have about 172 friends in the room. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you know, I was, I guess, initially down there six, seven times a year, and I fell in love with Rio and um, uh, was sitting at a industry function one day with a, and a retail resident, a real estate guy was sitting beside me, got chatting, and, uh, and so I was asking him, what are, you know, what are condos cost here? Like, I had no idea. 
And that wasn't, I wasn't even thinking necessarily of investment, I was just interested. So he said, well, you know, on the beach they're pretty expensive, but if you're off the beach, you know, quite a bit less. And I said, well, if, if I were going to do anything, I, if it's a fun place, it would have to be on the beach. He said, well, about $500 a foot. And I'm thinking, $500 a foot in a market that was growing exponentially, right on the most famous beach in the world. I thought, well, that can't be a bad investment. So that's how I, so we ended up buying, so we've had that for about three or four years now, I guess. Yeah. And how is your Portuguese? That's not an easy language. No, it's not an easy language. <laughs> well, I, you know, I can order dinner and drinks and, <laughs> and get home. So that's, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so last one. Um, just, uh, just this mixed use development, and you guys got back into residential. Um, was that a, because you almost went back to your roots? It was, it was, it was like back to the future almost. And so, when you started to sort of look at mixed use, again, was it we're not sure if we're going to get in? Because I know when you hired John, you didn't have a big development program, but it's really the development has become a big part of of, of what Cadillac's portfolio yeah. is, right? Well, we had a very large development program up till that era at the end of the '80s, of course, and then, I mean, I don't know. I don't think there was an office building built in in downtown Toronto for a decade. Uh, well, you did the next that. one, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, but anyway. So we, so we had. John was hired. We we went um, probably five or six years without a department, really, other than we had some. Uh, but it was mainly our construction group that would do, you know, minor upgrades and uh, stuff that was going on. But uh, we weren't contemplating new developments. So we hired John, and John kind of worked in the wilderness for three or four years before. We got anything going, but um, no, the residential, I mean, mixed use is obviously very much uh, the way for the future, particularly in large urban areas, for, uh, I mean, not particularly, in large urban areas as opposed to, you know, less uh, dense populations. But, but our return to residential per se, and it's really pretty much all condo, um, was really a a decision around maximizing the coverage and 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 harvesting all the value we could um, off a off a piece of land, so we'd get the we'd get the densities upgraded up uh, upgraded and then be able to add a component. But we've net, you know, we in 1982 really sold off all our residential and our residential expertise, our the people that ran them and developed them. We hadn't had anybody like that in the company for for 20, 30 years. Um, so all our residential developments, we've, we've paired up with, uh, uh, with a developer who's in that business. Um, and so we brought, we, they, we partnered with, uh, with uh, them um, and to do, to do the projects and they really ran that residential side because it's really not something we had the expertise to do. Uh, and that, of course, um, mitigated uh, our risk and investment uh, on, on the residential side, certainly. So that was really, it was really all about maximizing the value on a site that, um, that got us back into that. And, and I think years. I know the answer to this question because I've asked you twice and you give me the same answer twice. So again, any hesitation from teachers to get into development, to get into residential development? Or? No, no, not, not at all. Um, uh, the... Um, uh, you know, we looked at uh, residential, rental residential as a class um, uh, during the early years in the 2000, 
first decade. Um, and, uh, but it was just very, it was very hard to buy a platform with sufficient size uh, for us. And industrial was the same, actually. Um, uh, we would have looked at that if we'd been able to find a company and a platform. But, you know, uh, rental residential has always been the, the premium kind of real estate. I think, you know, investors like it, banks like it. You know, your, your risk is spread over a much broader base. Um, and uh, so it was always very expensive. And, you know, to put together a large portfolio in a, in a city like Toronto, even if you could find somebody who, who wanted to, who was willing to sell, the, you know, the cost was big. And generally the stock was old. Not, but there has been a lot of rental residential built in the last uh, 20 years. And so it's old stock, so there's, it's fraught with problems. You know, I mean, there's lots of maintenance, lots of, you never know how much deferred maintenance is in one of these buildings until you own it. And uh, so we were, never, we were never really able to, um, uh, uh, to find a, uh, a way in there that yeah. made sense to us. So last two questions, and then I'm going to open the mic up. So um, you obviously have seen a lot. So anything that you wish, you'd said, okay, your real estate was shut to me. But clearly you were on a path to make lots of money because you kept moving on for these extra checks. But <laughs> anywhere along the way you wish you'd stopped off and said maybe if I'd gone that way, I would have also enjoyed that? No, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think if I'd stayed with the bank, I probably would have had enjoyed myself at the bank. I'd love to... I loved my uh, career there, um, but in hindsight, you know, real estate, it was a, just a great fit for me when I finally got there, and, uh, and uh, I, enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed all those years since the early 70s, and, um, and it's been very good to me, so I, no, I don't, I, no, second, no second thoughts now. Wake up in the middle of the night and I wish. No. <laughs> um, so last question, which is the question I've asked every year when we've had, um, a guest, is what single piece of advice would you give to younger people coming into the business? And I will remind people of the three answers that we had, which was uh, Ned Goodman said, find yourself a partner um, because it spreads the risk. You're able to rely on someone. He said, it doesn't have to be the same partner, but always find someone that you can rely on in your business life. Um, John Love said, do that which is in front of you. Don't do that which is in front of what is in front of you. In other words, don't overreach. If you think that the task is mundane and you do it well, someone will find something better for you to do. Don't constantly overreach yourself. And Ed Sunshine's, which was the simplest of all, he said, just be honest. Because it, he said, a smart, dishonest guy will find it much harder to have a career than a dumb, honest guy. Um, which wasn't bad advice either. So, hmm. <laughs> over to you. Well. Well, I think, it, like many business, it's a relationship business, and uh, the people you meet and deal with um, through your, uh, whether they be uh, in the company or, or uh, people you interact with in any activity, I think, um, those relationships, uh, they really do come back. And um, so I think uh, treating people all the way through, um, you know, certainly, can't argue with honesty, being open and, and uh, uh, honest in all your dealings. Uh, respect for people, I think, having a respect for everybody, whether, you know, from the 
the lowliest to the uh, most senior people, um, sort of keeping the, building those relationships, demonstrating respect. Uh, at the end of the day, that's how you, um, I think that's where integrity is born from. And I think at the end of the day, all you've got is your reputation and, uh, and uh, if, if integrity isn't part of that reputation, then I think you have a tough time. So, yeah, I think it's those relationships you keep with, respect and open, fair, honest uh, dealings, and um, uh, it, all, it all works out. And when you, and, and that's sort of the Cadillac way too, because I know when you and John were changing over, you toured every property, more or less met everyone at every property. We did, we did. We spent... Uh, quite a few weeks on the road. Uh, you know, I'd grown up through the operations side of the business, so I had the advantage of really knowing a lot of our people from coast to coast. Uh, John had come up through the development side, so hadn't had that exposure. So I think that handover was important. So that was a, that was a, a well, uh, it was a, a very much a managed process, was planned and managed. and. Uh, but yeah, the two of us went and we visited every property and we had a town hall with included, you know, tried to include every employee and uh, gave me a chance to say my thank yous to all of them on a, on a much more one-on-one uh, -on -one basis and then gave me a chance to introduce and talk about John and then it gave John a chance to sort of, um, uh, for them to see, hear John speak and, and get a sense of where he was going to take the company, and uh, so it was uh, that was very good. Different experience, but same value system, right? Yep. That's what was seamless between. Yep, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so I will open the floor to questions. Who's going to be brave enough? We actually gave a bottle. Of wine. I absolutely without being any permission. I gave a bottle of wine away last year, so I'll do exactly the same thing this year. <laughs> it's not my money. So a bottle of wine for the first person to stick their hand up and ask a good man. <laughs> Hello, uh, I'm Richard Witt from Quadrangle Architects. I, I wanted uh, to ask you, I was very interested to see that you were doing work in uh, Brazil, which was a, a real surprise to me. And I wanted to know, are you, or did you consider other countries? Because I would imagine if you were going to do a sort of international expansion that you would do it in lots of places rather than just one. So was that the only place? Or were there others that you considered? No, we worked, uh, we worked very hard. Uh, we invested in the UK. Uh, hardly an emerging market, but um, that was certainly... It will be soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, South Africa, we were, we were very interested in South Africa. In fact, we put in a bid for... It, um, uh, what's the name of it? The, the, the harbor of Cape Town, Victoria and Albert, uh, the V&A. The whole harbor of Cape Town uh, had been owned by a group of pension funds, and uh, we put in a, in a bid to buy that thing. We were very excited about that. Um, despite we had two um, partners that were um, uh, um, South African, um, oh, sorry, I'm forgetting the terminology I used, but these were basically, these were basically groups that were put together. They were funded by the government and their profits were supposedly going back into, into the townships and, and so on. So, but, you know, they did, 
through the government, they did put up, uh, put up serious money. Um, there were three bidders in the end, Old Mutual, uh, who um, uh, fellow there was active in Cape Town ourselves, and then a guy from Ireland and a guy, one from the Middle East. Um, we were within about 50,000, Old Mutual and ourselves were in about, within about $50,000 on a $1.1 billion bid. Um, the other guys outbid us by $300 million. <laughs> so those are ones you don't mind losing. You know, if you'd, if you'd lost it by you know, $10 million, you'd have gone crazy. But uh, $300 million, that was, that was easy. But that was, um, and you know, in hindsight, it may have been a good miss because um, they've had, a, they've had a, a great deal of trouble there, um, partly because they overpaid, but I think there have been other, other issues. Um, we looked hard at India. Um, couldn't get comfortable there. Uh, we looked hard at Mexico. We spent a lot of time in Mexico. Uh, and again, we found some um, assets in Mexico that we were, uh, were quite happy with. Uh, but we just couldn't get comfortable with the, with the owners and the partnership there. So, I mean, that is so crucial. Because uh, when you're a few thousand miles away and you've got somebody on the ground who knows all the knows all the players, knows all the ins and outs. Um, uh, you know, you can, you can be losing your shirt and not even know it until it's too late. So you've really got to find somebody who's good that you really do trust. Um, and we, we were able to find that in Brazil. Um, uh, we weren't. U.S., again, we found a great partner in the U.S. Uh, who we've had a, a long and, and very uh, successful relationship with. Did China come up on that? I never had any interest in China. You know, we, a couple of our filters were, you know, democracy was a filter, land titles was a filter, and a, and a court system you could depend on was a filter. Well, none of those sort of exist there um, today. Uh, so um, I, uh, you know, the board used to say, if, you know, should we be looking in China? And I, I always promised them I'd go, I never did. but. Um, uh, you know, uh, they understood my, uh, my, my rationale there. And, and I had complete alignment with my executive team on that. It's just, there will be a day when Cadillac Fairview and others should be in China. There been, there's a lot of real estate companies in China today. Uh, some of them have been there for quite a while and nobody's really making any money yet. As a retailer, you got, you'd have to be there. But, you know, there's a big difference between renting a bunch of stores and dropping $300 million on a piece of land that it can't move, um, so. Anybody? Um, over here. Um, you talked about um, relationships a lot tonight, and you, um, I think sometimes it's easy to ask, what, you know, what makes you comfortable in a relationship? Could you talk about what makes you uncomfortable as you're doing that due diligence um, process in, in a relationship? Oh, yeah. Well, it, I don't think it's probably very scientific. It's, um, um, you know, you, you, you meet and talk to people and you start dealing with people and I think you, you rightly or wrongly, you get a level of comfort or trust, uh, you know, whether you feel the person is dealing with you honestly and being open and candid and, um, uh, I mean that's that's a big part of it um, is is really that 
that comfort that you can trust the person and that there's an open dialogue and uh, you know there really I think there needs to be some chemistry that develops between uh, two people if you're going to um, you know if you're going to put your money in and um, and and basically you're putting it in their care to the extent even though you might have you may have controls in your agreement inevitably you do but um, you know and, and you know my view is once you've you sign that onerous document, that partnership agreement or a shareholder agreement, and you know it should go into a drawer. And the day you bring it out again, it's usually because things haven't worked out. Uh, you know, I, I'm a great believer that once you have to start referencing back to the shareholder agreement as to whose rights are what and so on, then you've probably passed a point of uh, of no return. So. I don't know if that answers your question wholly, but that's... One, the, the, we've, we've had the center, we've had the left. I feel like Josh Groban. Come on the right, here we go. Just this conversation was about um, your life. So we've talked about your uh, past. What about current? What are you doing now that you've left Cadillac Fairly, Fairview? Well, I'm, I'm uh, thoroughly uh, enjoying myself. Um, up until this evening, <laughs> I was on the, on the board of Allied. That may change, um, <laughs> but um, no, I, I actually have just recently uh, joined Allied's board and um, I was absolutely thrilled to get that call because it's a company that I've always had a great deal of respect for. I think they've done a wonderful job for Toronto in preserving a lot of our, our buildings and um, has great leadership in the organization. So uh, that's, that's a new one, I, but I'm... Uh, uh, Another very flattering call I got was from Bruce Duncan, who had been our, my CEO at Cadillac, and, and who was really a great proponent of me um, uh, succeeding him uh, there. So, uh, uh, but he is now the president of uh, an industrial REIT in Chicago called First Industrial. And when he joined the, the company, he called me and asked me if I would go on the board, and he said, no, I gotta tell you, this, we're on the edge here, and this may not work out. Uh, this is a company that, you know, there was a lot of work to be done. Um, but in typical Bruce, well, first of all, me saying no to Bruce was pretty much a non-option, so I said yes. Um, but, you know, he's a tremendously talented guy. Um, and, you know, he taught me a lot about people and, um, and dealing with people, um, you know, when he retired, I remember saying it as saying that, you know, he's a guy I wish I'd had an opportunity to work for 10 years earlier in my career because I, I really did learn so, so much from him. And um, so on that, I'm on a, um, uh, uh, two other boards, um, which, uh, uh, so they, you know, they, they keep me busy. I'm doing a couple of uh, uh, direct investments myself and, I share an office with uh, three other guys uh, up in North Young, and I'm, I never wake up with nothing to do, and I've always got uh, something to think about. So I'm, I'm really thoroughly enjoying myself. It's, it's as good as I could have hoped for. So I think uh, if I ask you to hold your applause, because uh, Mansur is going to come up and just say a few words. And Uh, 
Uh, hi, uh, I'm Matsur Kazruni. I'm the co-chair of the ULI's uh, program committee. And uh, on behalf of the ULI, thank you all very much for attending uh, this evening's uh, wonderful chat. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors, our lead sponsor, Cadillac Fairview, and uh, our event sponsors, uh, TD and CBRE. Um, last but not least, thank you to our speakers, John, for uh, hosting this event, and Peter for sharing your wonderful insights, for uh, the advice that you've provided, and for telling us your story. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, a few uh, housekeeping uh, issues, an update first. Um, actually, before I get into the update, we are uh, following up this event as we have the last few events uh, with a related tour. And so the ULI has organized a tour of the TD Center. It's a members only event, uh, June 27th at 5.30 p.m and it's limited to 30 uh, members only. So if you are interested, do sign up. Spaces are filling up very quickly. Um, lastly, the ULI uh, John Street pilot program. Last week, uh, ULI uh, and the City of Toronto and Metrolinx unveiled uh, the John Street uh, transformation in Western Village uh, with a sidewalk, uh, cafe-style seating, surrounded by flowers and a beautiful canopy of lights that uh, frame the gateway to uh, the Sunday Farmer's Market uh, in that uh, area there. Uh, this uh, pilot project is one of the first uh, quick start initiatives that emerged from the, the TAPS uh, Technical Assistance Program, which was held last year. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually fabulous. Everyone's invited to come and experience this magical transformation on John Street. Uh, I believe the installation will be up until uh, early September. Uh, on that note, thank you all again for your attendance, and thank you. We uh, do have a small token of appreciation for our guests tonight. Thanks very much. Thank you, Peter. <laughs>